Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, here today with the If It's an Opera, Why Aren't They Singing? episode of New Books in Science Fiction. I'm super happy to have as my guest today Tim Pratt. He's a wonderfully prolific Hugo Award-winning author to talk about The Wrong Stars, his space opera that's been shortlisted for this year's Philip K. Dick Award. Tim is the author of over 20 novels, writing both as Tim Pratt and T.A. Pratt, He won the Hugo for Best Short Story in 2007, and he's been nominated for a Nebula Award, Stoker Award, Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award, and many other awards. He's also a poet, and uh, one of his poems won a Reisling Award, which, for those who may not know, is given for the best science fiction, fantasy, or horror poem of the year. By day, or I suppose maybe by night too, Tim works as a senior editor for Locus Magazine, and he's on the line with me now. Hey, Tim, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. Tim, you do so much. You edit a magazine, and you've edited anthologies, and you've written short stories and poems, urban fantasies, a middle-grade spy novel, a historical novel, even role-playing game tie-in novels, but you've never until now written a space opera. So why now? Why do you want to write a space opera like The Wrong Stars? I've always loved that genre. You know, I grew up reading Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett. And as I got older, I got into Ian M. Banks. The Culture series is a huge touchstone for me. But I never felt like I could write science fiction because I felt like my grasp of like the physics and the orbital mechanics and the hard SF elements were not good enough. And so I always resisted it because I don't have a very mathy brain. I tend to work better when I'm in legendary folkloric mythological spaces like that stuff I get and even history like that stuff I get on a deep level but I always just thought I wasn't qualified you know because I also I grew up reading Card and Binford and Clark and you know the hard SF people Asimov as well but at some point when I was in my 30s I'm 41 now when I was in my 30s and I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do when I wound up my big urban fantasy series, which I finished up last year, like what, what was the next thing I wanted to do? Cause I don't always want to do the same kind of book forever. Right. I could write contemporary fantasies and write perfectly enjoyable novels over and over and over, but I would get bored. You know, I like to try new things and I thought, well, it's not as if writing science fiction means that I have to write utterly plausible, completely grounded, hard SF, right? Like there's a continuum that has at one end the sort of hard SF stuff and at the other end it has Star Wars, right? It can have artificial gravity and laser guns and all that stuff. And it's not as if I hadn't been a fan of Firefly and of, you know, the Mass Effect video games and stuff like that where they played a little bit more loose with the hard science. But just for whatever reason I had in the back of my mind, oh, I can't write science fiction, it's too hard. So I got over that. I told myself that's silly. I can, first of all, I can learn things. I know lots of astronomers and astrophysicists. I can get the stuff right that I need to get right. And if I want to do wilder, stranger things, I still can. It's still okay because there is this whole space, space opera space, (laughs) this whole 
subgenre that doesn't have to be as hard as stuff. And I decided that I wanted to play in that. So I do try to keep some of the, you know, physics in the solar system stuff halfway plausible, but the books have just tons of bizarre alien technology that essentially allows me to get away with doing all sorts of things that maybe violate the known laws of physics. And it's not as if tons of big science fiction power cords don't already violate all the known laws of physics, right? We have faster than light travel, and we have time travel, and you know, psionic powers used to be considered a hard science fiction thing because people thought that was maybe possible, right? So the goalposts move constantly anyway. So I decided to just cut myself some slack, just sit down and write it and see how it turned out. Well, I want to ask you in a little bit about the creative process because I really enjoyed your creativity with the inventions that you credit the alien species with inventing. But before we get to that, let's take another few minutes on the idea of a space opera. I think I've always known what the term means. They're on a spaceship, they're traveling across the universe, there's intergalactic conflict and different aliens. But I guess I've never really plumbed the term too deeply. And obviously, you've given it a lot of thought. So so what are the ingredients that actually go into something that make it a space opera? Uh, for me, my, it's just basically not necessarily hard SF. So it privileges adventure a little bit more than it does engineering. Um, for me, I guess I feel like it's more about the human or alien story about the people in it and less about the technology. And it also has room for widescreen stuff and uh, widescreen stuff and melodrama in a way that um, is maybe not forefronted in some more hard science fiction. Uh, Brian Aldiss had a really offensive quote about space opera. Science fiction is for real. Space opera is for fun, is the short form of his rather offensive quote. So the idea is that you can uh, ignore technological plausibility and extrapolation in favor of just doing stuff that's exciting and cool. So I can get away with having you know, aliens who can control inertia or who can have artificial gravity or can do really implausible biotechnological things. Um, you can play with the, the Clark dictum that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and you can really lean into the magic part of it. I mean, once you have once you've posited a race of ancient, incredibly powerful aliens who had technology so vast they could alter uh, physical constants in the universe, you can do pretty much anything. So, it, yeah, space opera for me, the emphasis is just more on fun and adventure and less on it being plausible. Well, you've hinted at some of the elements in the story and in The Wrong Stars. So why don't we, why don't we dive into the story itself? Um, and maybe we can just start with an overview which I always actually find challenging when I'm doing an interview like this, because, you know, I would love to discuss every little <laughs> twist and turn in the story. I thought the book was great, but of course, I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't read it. So so how do you describe what the book is about without ruining the whole story for, for people? Sure. Well, I can. So the essential setup, it's set about 600 years in the future. And the main cast is the crew of the starship called the White Raven. And they're kind of a ragtag crew of humans and post-humans, and they operate out on the fringes of our solar system, out beyond the orbit of Neptune, where there's uh, commercial activities, uh, mining dwarf planets and asteroids and stuff out in the Kuiper Belt. And they do some freight work and some escort work for visiting foreign dignitaries, and they do some security work. They hunt space pirates. They do salvage. I mean, they, they're just kind of an all-around ragtag crew sort of deal, right? And uh, they discover 
this ship, this wrecked ship in a place where it shouldn't be because about a hundred years in our future. So 500 years in the past, from the point of view of my main cast, the earth was in extremely bad shape. Like it was looking like it was going to be uninhabitable. And so a desperate series of missions were launched and they were called Goldilocks missions. And they sent out these seed ships that they called Goldilocks ships. And they were just small ships cram packed with seed banks, you know, various sorts of plant and animal life embryos and small crews of volunteers of highly skilled people, right? So people who knew ecology, who knew biology, who knew physics, who knew infrastructure. And they just shot out hundreds of these ships to every halfway plausible looking place in the galaxy, right? Essentially any place where there appeared to be planets in the Goldilocks zone, where there might be planets that could sustain life. The idea being that probably 99% of them would find places where humans couldn't live, right? It was just a desperate thing, hoping that the human race would be perpetuated somehow, that maybe 1% or even a tenth of a percent of the ships would find some place where they could actually live. So they find this ship, this Goldilocks ship, and it should be, because it was sent off 500 years ago, it should be light years away by now. But it's not. It's just wrecked out there in the Kuiper Belt. And so at first they think, well, the ship must have just never made it out of the solar system. The poor bastards, they just broke down. So they go to salvage it, see if there's anything on it that's worthwhile um, for scrap or to sell to collectors. And they get on board and they find to their surprise that there is still somebody there in cryosleep. Because the way they worked is they would put a crew of five or six people into cryogenic suspension. The idea being they would wake up when they got to their destination. But What's stranger is that several of the cryopods are empty, and there's also a lot of other really weird stuff going on with the ship, like it appears to have been altered. It has very bizarre mechanical changes to it. It's got this device hooked into the propulsion system that is, doesn't look like anything humans have ever made, and it's a mystery. And so they wake up the one person who's in this pod, and her name's Elena. She was a, mostly a biologist. And, you know, she has other disciplines too, but that's her main thing. And they wake her up. So I get to have some fun with the sort of sleeper awakens trope, right? Where you wake up somebody from a contemporary time in the future, and then you can view the future through their eyes and see, you know, it as they would. And Elena is from a hundred years in our future or so, but she's still pretty close to us contemporaneously, right? Like she's still, she's not as estranged from our time as people 600 years in the future would be, right? And she wakes up and tells them essentially, Oh God, I encountered aliens. Aliens are real. And at this point, the crew sort of has to exchange glances because they made first contact with aliens centuries before, right? They already know about aliens. The whole way humans have spread throughout the galaxy and kept the earth from being destroyed is they met these weird little aliens who are called liars. Um, the aliens, they're about the size of human toddlers for the most part. They look sort of superficially like octopus or squid and that they have a central body and they have varying numbers of tentacles, varying numbers of eyes. The thing about the liars is they like to tinker and experiment and change themselves. So it's really hard to say anything about them as a species that's universally true. They seem to operate in tribes and families. And the other thing about them is that they lie they tell completely different, contradictory, conflicting stories about their origins. Uh, whatever planet they claim to be from, if anyone goes and investigates, there's no planet there or the planet clearly couldn't sustain life. They will lie about big things. They will lie about small things. They will lie about their names. They seem to do it just completely habitually, which makes them difficult trading partners 
but not impossible trading partners, because if you have them right in front of you and you verify that the thing they're selling you does what they claim it does, and you don't make any future plans, you, you do the whole thing right then, right in front of them, you can kind of manage. And the way that we found the liars was that a bunch of them showed up in our solar system and told us that uh, they were going to invite us to a vast galactic trade confederation. It was going to be great. You know, we would join a thriving community of aliens and all they wanted in exchange was, you know, a few million tons of seawater, maybe rights to permanently reside on Venus since we weren't using Venus. And then another set of liars came and said, no, no, those first set of liars, they're terrible. Terrible. You can't trust them. In reality, there is no thriving galactic federation. What there is is a terrible war-torn nightmare hellscape of a universe and horrific locust-like aliens are coming and they're going to kill you all unless you pay us a lot of money and let us have mercury and then we'll protect you. We'll set up a force field. It'll be great. And then some more liars show up and tell a different story. And it turns out that they're all just making up shit. They're mostly making up, I don't know if I can say shit on your podcast, they're mostly making up stuff that they've picked up from you know, human media, like alien invasion stories. They're telling us things that they think we'll believe. Uh, a lot of them are con artists, not all of them. So they tell Elena that we already know about aliens, right? We actually have met them a long time ago. We know it's very new and exciting for you being a cave person who was just woken up from a glacier, but no, we know about aliens. And then Elena says, no, these were different aliens. They were nothing like that at all. And so that's the essential thing that the book is about, is exploring what she encountered and what happened to her crew. And also a little bit of why the liars are the way they are, right? What is it about them as a culture, as a people that makes them make all this stuff up? And there is a, you know, I think a satisfying reason to explain why they are the way that they are. So those are mysteries that I will not give away, but that's, that's essentially what the setup of the book is. You know, they find this person in a place where she shouldn't be from a long time ago who reveals to them that their fundamental understanding of the galaxy is, is different, is flawed that there's more out there than they realized. Well, one of the things that's so great about your book is that, you know, each one of these ideas that you've presented, like the Goldilocks ships or this species that humans call the liars, they actually have a different name for themselves, uh, which really reflects a very different perspective on who they are. But I guess I won't I won't say <laughs> what that other name is, because sure. for most of the book, we know them as the liars because they do, in fact, uh, are, in fact, lying to humans. But each one of these things presents, uh, you know, a lot to think about. I mean, one of the things I, I, one of the ideas I enjoyed about the Goldilocks ships is that it's really an irony that, you know, in the interim, in the 500 years in which Elena was in cryosleep on this ship, humans made contact with aliens. They learned with the help of the liars uh, and their technology to be able to jump to other planetary systems so that when some of these Goldilocks ships arrived 500 years later, humans had already been there for centuries. They, <laughs> they leapfrogged over them, uh, which I can only imagine was very frustrating for the people in, um, in cryosleep, but also an interesting, uh, just an interesting idea that, that's, that that could could happen. I did get into this a little bit more in the sequel, The Dreaming Stars, but there's, you know, there's hundreds of these people who've woken, whose Goldilocks ships have shown up in places where there's habitation, and they're referred to as time refugees, and there are social programs to help them, you know, reorient themselves in society. Well, that definitely makes sense, and it and it is interesting, too, that Elena is kind of like the window through which the reader you know, is the person the reader can most identify with because she really is a throwback closer to our time. So it seems like it's a very smart way to to bring the reader into the story and allow you to explain things that if you 
otherwise explain them and might seem clunky because why would people why would people of the future explain to each other how things work they already know how things work but you need to explain them to elena and in that way you you explain it to the reader in a very deft way yeah well, i mean it's a classic science fictional approach right i mean it's uh, it's one of the one of the strategies for dealing with that problem but you know it's all it's it also allows for a lot of comedy and a lot of human stuff right a lot of good character things and uh and good jokes i like good jokes let's talk a little bit more about the liars just the idea that humans first contact would be with a species that would lie to them all the time and basically <laughs> the liars the liars control the news i mean humans only know about the universe through the liars and the liars are lying to us so it's sort of like Humans are, are getting a good part of their knowledge of the universe through what some people today might call fake news. You know, it's like, <laughs> what are, what's true and what, what isn't? And it's a really interesting idea, though, that, that we would be beholden to this group of sentient beings who are clearly more advanced than us, but also aren't telling us necessarily the truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's a fun species to play with, right? Like, they gave us access to these bridges, these wormhole gates, which... Some of the liars claim to have built. Some of them say they're just natural features. Some of them say that uh, other aliens built them a long time ago. There are all sorts of different stories, but they show us how to use them to get to about 30 other solar systems. And they say those are the only ones that are accessible. I mean, some of them say that, right? That seems to be the information that we've gotten, but that's maybe not necessarily true. And the other thing about them is that they don't seem to, they're not malicious. I mean, some of they try to, you know, get the better view in a business deal, absolutely. But they don't attack people. They're not violent. They like to tinker with things and build things. They can even collaborate. I mean, they live on space stations as mechanics because if you give them a project to work on, they find that fun. They'll go mess with it and they'll tinker and they'll improve things. But there are some of them who are incredibly isolated, who they're uncontacted ones who presumably don't even know humans exist because they're a really fragmented species and they're all over the galaxy. And some of them have change their bodies so that they're completely, you know, they, they're sort of the standard ones who are smaller than humans, but there are some of them that are the size of hands. They're like miniature little liars. There are some who've altered their bodies for unprotected space travel. So they're essentially like whale-sized living spaceships, but they're all the same species. You're, you're basically reflecting the freewheeling nature of your creativity, I think, because they, they basically can be anything. And it's very, I mean, it's a fascinating idea, and I loved them as characters, and I uh, thought the book was great. I wonder what inspires you. I mean, you must have had so much fun creating all this technology, as you said, since you weren't constrained by the dictates of hard science fiction. You could do whatever you wanted, so you had absolute freedom to be inventive. So I just wonder where, you know, if there's anything you could say about what your creative process is. I mean, just ideas pop into your mind, you jot them down. Are there certain particular things that have inspired you? Do you run out of ideas? And when you do, where do you go for inspiration? I, I read a lot. Um, I read a lot of fiction and I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I just pay attention to the world around me. I ask people questions. Anything that I find halfway interesting goes into the well, the compost heap of my brain, right? Like it goes in there and I turn it over occasionally and stuff changes and transforms. I mean, there's stuff in this book that I got from huge varieties of sources. There's a space station that is uh, an incredibly strange organic kind of structure and it's inspired by those people who pour molten metal into anthills and then excavate the metal after it's cooled so that they can map the tunnel systems of the anthills. 
you know, if you look this stuff up online, they're incredibly beautiful, incredibly bizarre structures. And I thought it would be really neat to have something that was built by aliens who didn't think about angles and beauty and curves and the golden ratio and stuff the way that humans do, right? Something that was maybe looked more like it was grown. And I have a friend who works in uh, medical bioscience who was showing me cast that they'd taken from the lungs of rats, right? And it was a remarkably similar sort of visual organic system. And so I put that stuff in the book. Big power cordy things that I just love in science fiction. Like uh, for this book, I actually literally made a list when I sat down and started thinking about writing a space opera system. Like what are things that I really love in science fiction? I like really interesting, weird artificial intelligences. I like bizarre, incomprehensible alien artifacts. I like talking squid from outer space. I like wormhole bridges and all the problems that come in when you can travel places so quickly that you could violate causality potentially, right? When you can send information faster than light travels. I just made a big list of stuff. You know, I like post-humans. I like cyborgs. I like weird alien medical experiments. I like bioscience. I like nanotech. And I just wrote down all this stuff and I'm going to get to most of it in the three books. Um, There might be more after that, but at least three books are happening set in this world. And I'm going to play with all those things. So no, running out of ideas historically has not been a problem. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. (laughs) So how are the other three books uh, coming? Because it is a trilogy. So what's the plan? Like when's the next one and the next one after that? Well, it's potentially an open-ended series. They bought one book from me uh, based on a proposal, and I wrote it and turned it in to Angry Robot, my publishers. And they liked it so much that before the book even came out, they said we'd like to do at least a couple more. And so they bought books two and three. I actually went away um, to a retreat in Louisiana for nine days with a bunch of other writers and did a ton of work and finished the draft of the second book, which is tentatively titled The Dreaming Stars. And it's about, you know, the crew going out and finding some other weird alien stuff that they have to deal with. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but I think it's a really, I don't know, I'm really happy with how it how it's turned out. I feel like in the first book, because I set up all the stuff about the characters, the main characters and about the world, now I have the chance to like really mess with that stuff, right? Like really do some interesting character things and really delve into some interesting stuff about the the socio-political system of that world, of what the colony systems are like. Um, so I feel like I was able to go deeper um, while still keeping kind of all the really fun stuff that people loved about the first book. Um, and the third book is called The Forbidden Stars, and it's probably coming out in fall of 2019. So The Dreaming Stars will be out this fall, 2018. So they're coming out about a year apart. And, you know, I have copious notes for the third book already. And so the deadlines don't intimidate you because I often hear about writers who get multi-book contracts and then the window to, to finish the next book, they're sort of locked in and you know maybe they took many years to write the first book and then they sold it, but then the pace really picks up. I've been a professional novelist since my first book was under contract, I think in 2003 or four. Um, so I've been at this a while. Most years I would write two or three novels. So this is actually intensely lazy for me schedule-wise um, because I would be doing, I mean, for the past decade, I would be doing like my urban fantasy novels and maybe some role-playing game tie-ins and stuff like that and maybe some small press literary fantasy novels. So last year I wrote one book. It was the laziest year I've had. This year I've written one book. It's done already. It's March 3rd or whatever today. 
So I am already thinking maybe I should write another book in between. Maybe I should write another fantasy novel. I'm not intimidated by these deadlines, no. <laughs> wow, that is really impressive. So I guess you're not doing, I mean, you don't need to do multiple drafts or, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's some revision involved, but maybe oh, of course, not yeah. as much as maybe some other people. My, my approach has always been think about it a lot before I even start typing. I don't outline extremely extensively, but I always know the structure before I sit down. So typically what my revision entails is deepening things, adding texture, making the world more rich, um, occasionally adding scenes if I feel like there's some thematic thing or some part of a character arc that doesn't feel fully justified or fully earned. My books tend to grow by 10 or 15% during the revision process. But I mean, it's been a long time since I had to just look at a book and realize I just built it wrong and had to tear it down to the studs. I have done that um, for books in the past, but uh, structurally my stuff tends to be pretty sound because I've thought it through, you know, for months before I even sit down and start actually writing it. Well, I mean, we'll see what the readers think, right? Some people might feel that they're badly built, but no, I mean, usually I, I'm capable of writing a book in a couple of months. I have done that for like short deadline work for higher things they tend to not be as richly textured and as deep and complex. So if I can have six months, I'd much prefer that. That's time for me to write it, draft it, put it aside, come back to it with a bit of objectivity, you know, and go through and and make it richer and make it more layered and more textured. But also, I mean, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've written a lot of books. So I a lot of the pitfalls that I fell into early in my career and the mistakes that I made, I make new and different mistakes now. And they're mistakes that... Uh, that are uh, they're higher level mistakes, right? <laughs> well, for, well, for instance, what, what's a higher level mistake? <laughs> oh, just having um, character arcs that don't dovetail exactly the way that they should, right? Having, I don't know, like, um, not to pick on a show that I actually really liked, but like uh, Stranger Things, right? Good show. But there's essentially sort of two ongoing problems in it. There's find the missing kid and there's fight the big monster, right? Right. And it's fine, but the group of people who are focused on finding the kid are the ones who ultimately defeat the monster. And the ones who are focused throughout the whole thing on defeating the monster are the ones who find the missing kid. So the plot arcs and the character arcs don't dovetail the way that they should, right? You don't, they don't earn the resolution that they've been working toward that whole time. They do some other random thing, right? They solve a problem that someone else was working on, which just to me is a little bit unsatisfying and messy. And I mean, it's fine. It's a good show and all that. And it's a, in many ways a quibble, right? But it was something that I found less satisfying because of that. So those are the kind of errors that I would be more likely to fall into rather than, oh, God, my plot doesn't make any sense or, oh, I structured this completely wrong. Um, things that necessitate tearing a book down to the studs and starting over with a page one rewrite. I have not had to do that in some years because I really hated it. I did not enjoy that process when I had to do it in my Early on in my urban fantasy series, I had to do that. So now I try to sort of plan out the structure and make sure that the, the essential shape of the book is right. And then if I have to fix things, it's a question of adding scenes, removing scenes, changing emphasis, rather than starting all over. I'm imagining that your job as a, as a senior editor at Locus Magazine perhaps gives you well, it gives you both a little space to think about something else at times. So you can get away from, you know, get some fresh thinking going on. When you, so when you return to your, your own writing, you, you have maybe a fresh perspective. 
And it probably also gives you a unique perspective, kind of an overview on science fiction. Uh, I wondered if you had been spotting, like, what, what trends would you say are the most salient or interesting trends in science fiction today? Well, we, we're not a fiction magazine. We're a news magazine. So we cover the field the way that Publishers Weekly covers all of publishing. Locus is a monthly that covers just science fiction and fantasy publishing. So we publish interviews with industry professionals, mostly writers, sometimes also editors and artists. Uh, we do lots of reviews, reviews of all the major new books and as many of the sort of uh, lesser known and small press books as we can cover, right? There's only so many books you can cover. I write the obituaries, one of the things that I do. I edit interviews, I write all the news. So in terms of learning stuff that helps me in my writing, uh, it teaches you to generate copy really quickly, right? It teaches you to just just write the write the stuff. Once it's down on the page, you can fix it, but you have to actually write the stuff. And working for a news magazine also teaches you to not be overly precious about your prose, right? I I will happily kill my darlings. I, I keep a lot of my darlings because I like them, and why not, right? If you're a writer and you do something that you think is cool, let it be cool. Put it in the book. It's fine. Books have room for stuff that's maybe not 100% entirely necessary just because it's neat. But it does teach me about hitting deadlines, being a professional, doing what I say I'm going to do, not getting all caught up in the fact that I am an artist and my words are golden, right? Sometimes your words are golden and it's great, but it's three column inches too long and you just got to cut it because it's got to fit and you just figure out how to do it. So I've been at the magazine since 2001 and, uh, I've internalized a lot of those things. And one of the reasons that I get a lot of work for higher jobs and stuff is because I am reliable. I have a reputation that I will turn in what you need when you need it on time. I will not be a prima donna. I will not be a pain in the ass. So that's been valuable. Uh, to your question about trends, I mean, space opera is super hot, right? And I saw this coming three years ago, four years ago. And that was part of why when I came to my agent and said I could write these different things, let's talk about of these various ideas that I'm pretty much equally passionate about, which one makes the most commercial sense. And we both said, well, there's Star Wars movies coming out every year, right? Uh, the Expanse is on TV, right? Space opera looks like we're at the beginning of what could be a boom in the field. And space opera, I mean, science fiction, adventure stories have never been a losing prom proposition, right? Like they've been going along, but definitely there's, there's a little boomlet in space opera right now the same way that there was in, you know, urban fantasy, you know, 15, 20 years ago, urban fantasy was really huge and hot. And, you know, horror was the big hot thing in the 80s. Um, space opera seems to be the thing that's big right now. Otherwise, in terms of trend, you know, YA still does extremely well, right? Um, big fat epic fantasies. There's always going to be a house, uh, a home for big uh, epic fantasies that readers can really immerse themselves in. Um, straight urban fantasy, yeah, not doing as well these days. There, there was a real glut in the market. Um, so you're not seeing as much of that stuff as you used to. We report every month on deals on books that people are selling. Um, and so we have a pretty good sense month to month what editors uh, in the field are buying, what kind of books they're acquiring. And these are books that aren't going to be out for two years which is why I always find people who attempt to jump on trends and bandwagons to be a little bit self-defeating because the trend that you think you're jumping on, it could be almost over now because those books were acquired 18 months, two years, sometimes even three years ago, right? They're just now coming out. If you actually want to see what's hot now, you have to actually look at what people are buying right now today. 
That makes sense. And are there any trends that maybe you're wary of that you see coming going, ooh, that doesn't sound like a good idea? No, I mean, you can you can tell you can you can tell great stories in any genre. Like, I mean, I mean, you there are things that are waning. Steampunk is not as hot as it was. Right. Steampunk was incredibly hot for a while. Urban fantasy is going down a little bit. But no, I'm I'm incredibly embracing of pretty much all the genres. Right. There's good stuff and there's lousy stuff in all of them um there are things that i enjoy reading more i like contemporary fantasy i like adventure-based science fiction i like grim dark fantasy i like mystery novels i like crime novels i mean there's stuff that i maybe personally prefer but you know i've I've read romance novels that i found to be impeccably put together wonderful humane insightful things i mean the books that i've read in the past week i read a YA romance i read a contemporary literary novel about psychics i read a rather lurid uh, and overwrought thing about demons rising from the depths of the internet. I read um, a romance novel. Like, yeah, I, I like all kinds of stuff. And is that all for Locust Magazine that you were doing all that reading, or is that for your own edification and pleasure? No, I just read. I mean, um, I've always read a lot of books. Um, and now that, you know, have a Kindle app or iBooks or whatever on your phone, on your tablet, like I always have half a dozen books in my phone. So I just read all the time. Um, also I was traveling. I went to a retreat and came back. So I had hours on airplanes. I don't normally read five or six books in a week. I usually read one or two, but you know, I, I had a lot of time sitting in airport terminals and being squished into window seats. So I read a lot. Um, for the magazine, I occasionally review, I used to review more, but you know, I'm so busy with my own projects now. I tend to not do too many book reviews anymore. Every once in a while, if I read something, if there was something I was going to read anyway and no one else was covering it, I'll write a review for the magazine. But. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for joining me today and talking about The Wrong Stars. It's really been wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for letting me rant and ramble. Uh, Tim Pratt and I have been discussing his Philip K. Dick Award-nominated novel, The Wrong Stars, which came out last year from Angry Robot. For more episodes, please drop by newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link or subscribe to the New Books and Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Don't forget to leave a review if you've liked the show. I'm Rob Wolf. You can find me at robwolf.net. And let me just say that it's a privilege and honor to do this show. I'm really humbled by the chance to talk to authors like Tim Pratt. And so I just hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy hosting. Bye for now.